Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Jackie Mitchell. This is where we pick the best brains in the business world and you, the listener, feel like you are eavesdropping on a really interesting coffee conversation to give you and your business the inside edge. We take a look into the business mindsets of leaders and brands and probe into how they think, feel, learn, manage teams and themselves. We love sharing the knowledge and serve brain food to keep your business mind healthy. To continue the conversation, you can connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. So while our first guest settles in, orders their coffee, grab yourself one and we'll be right back after this. Welcome back to the show. Our next guest is an expert on workplace cultures and an award-winning international speaker who works with organisations and individuals around the world to help them change the way they get things done. I want to know a lot more. I'd like to welcome to the show Colin Ellis. Thanks, Jackie. Great to be on the show. Great to have you here. Now, you have released two books. Did you release them both at the same time? Uh, I released one in July, Jackie, yeah. and uh, Culture Fix was out in October, so two this year. Yeah. Right, okay, wow, that's an amazing achievement, congratulations. Thank uh, you. The, the one I'd like to focus on today is called Culture Fix, and culture's such a hot topic at the moment, everyone's talking about culture. Why is it all of a sudden, do you think, that the spotlight is now on culture at work? Because, Jackie, you know, the world has changed, you know, for, for someone like me who entered the workforce, you know, kind of in the late 80s, they were very command and control environments. They were very much, the boss will tell you what to do and you do it, otherwise you'll be out on your ear. Obviously, generationally, we've shifted now and, and, and as a world, we've changed and what we're looking for now is more empathy, more vulnerability, more humility, and we're looking to create psychologically safe workspaces where people can do their best work, which means that pretty much every organization's got to look at how we do things around here uh, and make some changes in order to be, I guess, you know, somewhere that people want to come and do their best work. Yeah, well, I, I think it's always interesting when we talk about culture. At the end of the day, we're talking about people because we have to change people to change a culture. And yeah. uh, changing people is not always easy. So what are some of the, the key success factors for, for, I suppose, refreshing a culture is probably a better word than change. I don't know. What, what do you think? Yeah, I, I like the word evolving. The evolving oh, yeah, is the word yeah. that I use, yeah. Jackie, because cultures do evolve. I mean, it's true of society and it's true of workplaces too. And you're absolutely right. It's, you know, we often lose sight of the fact that, that, you know, kind of culture is about people. You know, we have senior managers all around the world and they look to implement quick fix solutions. You know, open plan is one of the favorites that I love joking about on stage. Let's go open plan. It'll improve collaboration. <laughs> you know, when the research shows that it does anything but do that, we forget that culture's about people. It's about the way that they behave, you know. It's about how they show up to work, how they speak to people, how much they give away about themselves, what time they make to build relationships. And then, you know, really how they uh, agree how they're going to work together. You know, it's, it's really basic stuff, Jackie, but it's, it's the kind of thing that people just don't take any time to do and then they wonder why they don't have a particularly good culture. Yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. I love that open plan. I was the worst because I was so loud. Uh, I was always on the phone speaking obviously too loud and so distracting. I used to find open culture so distracting uh, and that's the opposite to attention and so it, was, it became highly inefficient. Uh, but I think, I think there's, is that changing now? Are you finding more workplaces are going back to sort of office style? 
No, not really. I think there's, you know, you've got organisations that are kind of stuck between a, a rock and a hard place and not really giving it much thought. There are, there are organisations, Jackie, that, that want to do the right thing but then don't do enough research into what the right thing is, so they go open plan. And you're right, it's good for one personality type, and that's ours. You know, I joke about the fact that I want to have a conversation in the kitchen and for everybody else to hear it. Mm. Um, so it is. It, all it does is cause distraction for people who aren't like us. And then you've got another group, and then you've got another group of people who generally are the, are the tech companies who are putting lots of thought, lots of time, lots of effort and research into saying, okay, well, what do we need to create in order for everyone to be able to do their best work? And, you know, Atlassian, who are based in Sydney, found that, you know, you need an average of three and a half workspaces in an office for everybody to find the space that they need at a particular time to do their best work, which means it's not cubicle. It's not open plan. It's a mix of things, and ah. you get employees to choose where they do their best work. Yeah, we'll also add into the mix the now work more people working from home. Uh, and I love, I've always loved working from home, and I still do that where I can just work on my own, no distractions, be completely focused, but it does take self-discipline. So if you haven't got that element <laughs> in your personality, you're in a bit of trouble because you'll get stuck <laughs> watching Dr. Phil all day. Like you read in my autobiography. Um, yeah, no, it's totally true, uh, Jackie. Is you know we've got the, the gig economy and we're looking you know to give as much flexibility as possible, which is fabulous, providing that you know kind of culturally managers know how to set expectation in the right way, and then individuals have got the discipline to deliver to their goals. You know, and, and once you've got that, you've got the recipe for success. Yeah, there's there's a bit in the book that you talk about which I found interesting, and you refer to the book as a playbook. Uh, you said this comprehensive playbook. And I got, why have you used the term playbook? It's a very modern word, Jackie. It's what we're, it's what we're talking about at the minute. It's, it's how, yeah, the reason I use the word is because um, what you find often with books on culture, you know, when I was a permanent employee myself for 30 years, you know, I was a junior teller on a bank. That's where I started at 17, you know, and I ended up as a senior exec in government, uh, Jackie. And every time, you know, the CEO said, oh, we need to improve our culture, I went looking for the book and the, there was no book. I mean, there's loads of good books on culture, don't get me wrong, but none of them gave me specific tactical things that I could do. There was no, we call them plays these days, you know, like almost like a sports metaphor to say, well, if I do this play and then this play and this uh, play, I can build yeah. a great culture. And so I really set out to write the book that anyone could buy and go, right, okay, well, I don't need to spend half a million dollars on consultants. I can spend $30 on a book. And if I follow these things, then, you know, it's given me a good shot of being successful. Yeah, and the other bit that I think that's wonderful, the other bit that I really liked was about the, the concept of mindsets. And I've got a real thing about business mindsets. And you mentioned in the book about adopting the mindsets and behaviours for a successful culture. Just quickly, what are some of those that, that businesses, no matter what size, from micro right through to multinationals, you're dealing with people, there's still people. What are some of the well, key mindsets? Well, the first one and the most important one, Jackie, is that people think that it's possible to change culture. You know, and I was, you know, I was greatly influenced by Dr. Carol Dweck's book on, mm. on mindset. You know, she talked about this difference between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. Mm. And a fixed mindset, you very much believe that this is the way it is. It can never change. You think negatively of yourselves and other people. Often in fixed mindset cultures, you have lots of people talking behind each other's backs. 
you know, when most organizations go into any kind of cultural evolution and they'll tell themselves things like, oh, culture change is hard. Oh, we could do that, but that would be really hard to do. You know, and my argument is, well, you know, when we were all kids learning how to ride a bike, if our parents just told us it was hard and that we would never learn, then we'd never have got back on the bike, you know? Mm. And so, you know, organizations, what they need to do is give their people the skills on, on how to positively evolve the culture. And then make sure that senior managers role model what, what this thing called a growth mindset looks like. Often, you know, when they get it wrong, you have people telling you to be positive, which is my favorite. Come on, Colin, just be positive. It's like, oh, thank God. I just needed someone to tell me. Now I'm really <laughs> positive again. Uh, it doesn't work that way, you know. And so they need to instill into people the sense that anything is possible and then role model what that looks like. Yeah, okay. Now, this other book that you've got, the project book, I went, okay, that's interesting. Why did you do one on culture and one on project? Are they linked or are they two separate? Uh, no, they're very much linked. So uh, essentially, you, your projects are the way that you grow a business. Any organization, you grow through your projects. So you take on new stuff and you build new stuff. Um, and, and underpinning your kind of business as usual activity is your culture. And so they're very much interlinked. So you have a kind of strategic intent. This is what we want to do as a business, where you've got business as usual and projects. And so you need the culture. And the reason that I wrote the project book, um, Jackie, is projects were my life for 20 years, you know, which is why got heavily into teamwork, heavily into culture, because we wanted to make sure that we built the right kind of culture to deliver a project. And yet so many organizations still get their projects so badly wrong. And they're failing for the same reasons that they've been failing for the last, I don't know, 100 years, really. Um, and so it's really time for organizations to put the development budgets for project people into the thing that matter, and that's by good people who build great teams. Yeah, and if you run a project well then uh it's about creating efficiencies and there's so much positive but you see so much waste in project management don't you oh you do mm. like so many deadlines are missed yeah. um and budget go over budget and then they come up you know and i, I kind of this was me earlier in my career as mm. well they come up with like thousands of excuses like scope creep and uh, and all this kind of bad planning. And, and essentially, there's two reasons that projects fail. Either you've got senior managers who don't care enough or project managers who just aren't good enough. And, and these are the only two reasons that projects fail. And, and actually, by giving people the information, these two people the information they need to be successful, you know, you can, you can get pretty much everything right if you care enough. Yeah, that's true. Now, Colin, just to finish off, if you were to give some advice to a small business owner, because I think... In my experience, the micro-entrepreneurs, startup, small business field, culture sort of is like the bottom of their list because they're so focused on you know, building the business and growth and profit and all that sort of stuff. So from a cultural perspective, if, they, if you were to speak to them and say, okay, you're about to set up a business or you've, you've got your own business and there's some cultural issues, what's the first thing that they should do? Well, I think if they're already established, what they should do is actually take time to get to know each other, which sounds a ridiculous suggestion, Jackie, but I think too often what we do, we've got, we've got such a focus in the startup world of let's just get going.
and let's just get going. We never really get to know each other properly. And then set a vision, kind of a statement that this is where we want to be in the future. And then some values. And, you know, I really like the values because they provide what I would call like an emotional compass. Mm. These are the things that you hire against. These are the things that you kind of performance manage against. And these are the things that will bind you together as a team. So I think where you've got a, a strong set of core values, you've got something to really build, grow and evolve from. And that's the other thing about culture is you've got to keep feeding and watering it in order to have a healthy plan. Yeah, well, keep those books coming, Colin Ellis. Uh, it's certainly worthwhile, really useful for business of any size. If anyone would like to continue the conversation with Colin, you can find him at colindellis.com. You're on Twitter and, of course, you're hanging out at LinkedIn and your book is uh, available, I'm assuming, Colin, where you can buy books. <laughs> oh, yeah, from all good shops and some rubbish ones. Too. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've got to throw a bit of that in. You need to balance that out. Actually, you, you know, that, that's called scope creep. I love I haven't, I haven't heard that term for a long time. It did make me smile. Thank you, Colin. I wish you continued success and thank you for your precious time today. Thanks so much, Jackie. Yes, you're listening to Taking Care of Business right here on RPFM. Our next guest is an employment expert. She's founder and MD of Employee Matters. Her business and flying solo and is regularly quoted in publications such as the Sydney Morning Herald, ABC Radio, the Huffington Post and now at PFM. Welcome, Natasha Hawker. Well, that's great. Thanks, Jackie, for having me. I really appreciate it. Good to have you here. Now, you've been running uh, some SME research consistently shows that people issues are the primary cause of headaches for most businesses, particularly small businesses. Why is that the case? Look, I think it's a really good question. I think, uh, you know, MYOB do a survey every year about what keeps business owners awake at night. And every year it's cash flow and employees. It depends year on year whether it's cash flow in number one position and employees in, or employees in number one. And I think, you know, for many people, Jackie, they start a business because they're passionate about finance or real estate or baking or, you know, whatever their passion is for their business. And normally as a result of that, as their business grows, they need employees. And they're a whole other ball game for them. And I have one client who said to me, you know, running a business would be so much fun if I didn't have employees. And I think, you know, part of the reason for that is we have a fairly complex employee relations space. And, you know, most business owners struggle to keep up or keep on top of what they need to understand to basically hire, manage and exit well. And that's part of the challenge for them. And if their people aren't great, then their businesses aren't going to be great. Yeah, it got me thinking when people start businesses, uh, and I do a lot of work with entrepreneurs and startups, and they start with this big idea and the passion and excitement and enthusiasm, and they quite often don't think about when it grows that you'll have to get staff in and everything that goes with managing staff. It's sort of a bit of a, I suppose, a Band-Aid mentality. Has that been your experience? Very much so. And, you know, I think it's, I always say your employees are your greatest asset. They're also potentially your greatest liability. Mm -hmm. So we're all about how can we build employee asset businesses. And a big part of what we do, Jackie, is there is a police component of it's compliance involved in HR, that we're doing everything as we should. But the other piece that I think most business owners miss is the lift piece. You know, when you hire well, when you've got a highly engaged team, when you measure their results, when you actively performance manage people, 
you know, the lift in your productivity and profitability can be enormous. And most business owners don't do that. I think they think about plant equipment and machinery. Yes, we need maintenance plans for that and we need to make sure that everything's good. But they just sort of plug a person in a desk and say, right, off you wonder why they don't get the results from that same investment. And so it's how do you get the ROI on your people? Yeah, and also with entrepreneurs and small business or small to medium-sized businesses, quite often they don't have a full-time HR person. If they're lucky, they might have an HR consultant come in. So it's always sort of, I don't know, tucked away in a drawer somewhere or it's too hard to think about. And that led me to your book that you have just released, From Hire to Fire and Everything in Between. And I was giving it a read uh, recently and it actually scared me a little bit because it made me realise how much I don't know. Has that been common feedback from those that have read your book? Yeah, look, I think it's, I think it's awareness and, and unfortunately this is the big thing, you know. I think you raise a good point. Most business owners don't try and do the right, don't try and deliberately do the wrong thing. They actually want to do the right thing. But the statistics show us time and time again that in front of the Fair Work Commissioner on, in terms of unfair dismissal complaints, it's small to medium businesses that are fronting up all the time. And for exactly that reason, they don't have that, in, that HR expertise as and when they need it. And so that causes them some problems. So I think a big part of why I wrote the book was I am so passionate about small business owners. I think they're the hardest working Australians we have. And yet... You know, sometimes things come unstuck for them, not because they're trying to do the wrong thing. It's because they didn't know. But unfortunately, that is not a defence. You know, if you fair up, if you have to show up to the, uh, you know, the commissioner, he's going to say, well, you should have known that you needed to have that support person there when you have that difficult conversation. And so writing the book for me was a big part of getting that message out there. And it can be done well. And I think for most people, the feedback that I've got, which is fabulous, is that it's become their dog-eared book companion. And it sits on their desk and they go, oh, I need to have one of those difficult conversations. What do I need to be aware of? And then they just jump to that page and they're much more confident having that conversation, knowing that they've got, you know, the understanding behind them about what they can and can't do. And I think, you know, for a lot of business owners, Jackie, you know, they're almost scared by their employees now. And, you know, the reality is that I often say to business owners, you need to get them to follow reasonable instructions. As long as you're not asking them to do something unreasonable, then they should you know, do what you're asking them to do. And a lot of times it's like, oh, okay, well, I'll do that then. So, you know, it's really important that people understand the legal frameworks they're working in so they can get this stuff right. Yeah, well, I, I deal with a lot of businesses and I thought I knew enough, but I clearly didn't. And there was there was a bit in the book and it says, do I have your attention now? And the And the <laughs> preamble to that was, and I'm going to read this out because it freaked me out and I'll tell you what I did after I read it, which will make you have a little giggle, but it shows that how effective this book was. So it says here, there are some very large financial implications for getting this wrong. With each breach of a modern award, exposing your business to financial of up to $63,000 for a corporation and 12600 for an individual. Then you go on to say, which I like this bit, let me be very clear here, this is per breach. I went, oh my God. And then it got, a breach can be as simple as not giving out the fair work information statement. 
Now, I've employed staff. We run a family business as well. I have friends that have employees. I've never heard of the Fair Work Information Statement. So then I went, Googled it, I've printed it out and and this is what I did afterwards. I went straight to my computer, I Googled it, I printed it out, which is it's free to download and print online. It's two pages, a PDF. I then last night, on a Sunday night, went emailing it to everyone I know who has employees to make a friends and family to make sure that they've given that out to them so there you go so it was it was very useful for that but you certainly got my attention well I love hearing that and I literally have goosebumps on my arm because that is a simple breach now I'm not suggesting Jackie that you would necessarily get the full whack of that $63,000 but you could and and it's so important business owners it's hard enough running a business to get um bought I'm stuck by something as simple as that just because they didn't know is is a really, you know, would be a really sad thing. So one of the things that we've done is on our website there's a little diagnostic, free diagnostic, so business owners can just do that, and it's called Employee Metrics Mini, and that will give them a hint as to whether they're doing the basics right. So, and which you know, website's that, like that, Natasha? What's the website address? What's the website address? The website address? is employeematters.com.au. Right. And if you just go on to the contact us page, you can do the discovery tool there, the employee metrics tool there. And, and it's a great way just to go, oh, all right. Another simple one, Jackie, along that line is you must have a copy of the modern award that your employees are employed under available in the office and they need to know where it is now that can be virtually available on an intranet but they need to have access to it and that again would be deemed if they didn't uh, a breach um, and you know so that needs to happen and the other thing that most business owners don't do is they don't um, put um, their uh, the classification under the award in their employment contracts so they need to say you know Natasha's hired she's a level 31A and that needs to be very clearly in my employment contract so I know how you're um, categorizing me under my modern award so it's really important that we get these basic stuff right and they're not hard to fix you just fixed it really well you know by emailing that out and hopefully you'll be able to protect your friends businesses as well well, that's right, and, and I suggested, I said, look, just put it in the employee handbook. You might already have that, yeah. but it can just go in there with the OHS and all the other documentation that you, you give to someone that's uh, newly employed, and it can just go in there as part of, part of the kit. Now, the other thing, with big businesses, most of them do this quite well because they have that HR resource, but for small businesses, a lot of them engage contractors, so they're not full-time oh. employees, they're contractors, and this is where it starts to get... A bit murky. So, yeah. with that murkiness, because you can have a contractor who comes in for a project, or you can have a regular contractor. I know the the rules change uh, regulations in each state, which makes it even more complicated. But if they work so many hours regularly, then that can change uh, change things as well, doesn't it? Yeah, this is known um, as sham contracting. I always say to my clients, the riskiest way or instrument to hire someone is as an independent contractor. And let me share for you the reason why. Um, The ATO don't like independent contractors because guess what? They pay tax right at the end of the year, so it's not great for their cash flow. And Fair Work don't like them because they think you as an employer are trying to avoid paying your employee entitlement. 
So um, they make it, it is a very complex area and I would strongly recommend your listeners get some advice either from HR or from a lawyer. But essentially the test is multifaceted. So an example being, if an employee wears your uniform, carries your business card, you're calling them, even if you've got them on a contract, an independent contract, they would be two things that they would potentially fail the, the test of whether they truly are an independent contractor. The big gotcha one for me is as a true independent contractor, if I have George, who's my independent contractor, and George can't come in for the day, he can send anyone he wants in to replace him without my permission. And that is one of the tests of an independent contractor. And most people will go freak out and go, that's not the case. Mm. So it is a very complex test. It is worth getting this right because, again, there's a bit of a thing in this now. If you fail that and you are sham contracting, a fine of $63,000, up to $63,000 is there. But not only that, Jackie, they will force you to back pay entitlement. So if you've had George working for you, in that way for the past two years, you might also have to pay back his long service leave and pay or contribute to that or pay back uh, his annual leave because he was owed eight weeks because he's worked for you for two years. And he also probably would have had five days sick leave both days. So he gets back paid for that. So it is a very, uh, it's an area fraught with lots of problems. But it's really important that business owners get this right. Yeah, and hence the use of experts. But a really good place to start is your book, From Hire to Fire, by Natasha Hawker, who we're speaking with with now. And everything in between managing the employee life cycle, hire, manage well-being and exit. And I like it that you've got in the appendix here some sample policies, lots of things most helpful. And we'll put a link to our Facebook page for the uh, employee matters checklist that you mentioned. Natasha Hawker, congratulations, really enjoyed it. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and for your valuable time today on Taking Care of Business. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Always fun, enjoying picking the best brains in the business world. We'll be right back after this short break. Welcome back to Taking Care of Business as we're talking today about how to fix it in your business. If you're working in or advising or managing a dysfunctional team, then you know firsthand the destructive impacts of conflict, bad behaviour and poor culture has. Our next guest is going to guide and help us to relieve the headaches for managers and business owners in managing teams. She's the co-founder and managing director of workplace advisory firm WorkLogic and published author Rose Bryant-Smith. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Jackie. Great to have you here. Now, Rose, I've got it start really obvious question and it was something when I was looking at your book which we'll talk about in a sec but what are the characteristics of a dysfunctional team because I looked at that and I thought I wonder if my team's dysfunctional so what what should I be looking for? Well, most of the signs of dysfunctional teams are pretty obvious. So I think if you don't feel like you're working in a dysfunctional team, you're probably not. Uh, but I think one of the things to look for if you, if you fear that perhaps your team isn't working at its best um, is a conflict that's not being addressed, things that are ticking on over time uh, and that nobody feels safe enough or brave enough to have a conversation about. 
um, individuals who are behaving badly, like lots of gossip in the tea room uh, type of, of dragging down conversations. Uh, and also sometimes what might be put forward as all good fun, in fact, is quite toxic and nasty. So jokes about particular groups of people um, or undermining and excluding individuals. It's interesting you mentioned jokes because I've always had a view that, I mean, humour is a, is a wonderful gift, but it can be used for evil and, uh, and a lot of people use jokes and humour to be really nasty, but they sort of hide it or cover it up by saying, oh, I'm yes. just joking uh, and, real, and not realising that the, the damage that they're doing. Yeah, that's right. And I think another another thing that people do is is forget that when you're at work, even if you're mates with some of your colleagues, uh, the different rules apply. So sometimes people think, oh, well, if it's okay down at the pub to make some joke about a racist group, and when I say okay, not by me, but by mm. some people, um, then that should be fine at work and it's all a bit of fun. The reality is that in a workplace, we're all subject to not only the policies and procedures that apply in that workplace to how we treat each other, but also the state and federal laws which ban discrimination, um, bullying and, and other um, nasty conduct. So um, it, we, um, at WorkLogic, we do a lot of investigations of um, allegations of misconduct like racism and bullying and uh, people do sadly often try and argue, oh, it was just a joke and the person who's mm-hmm. taken offence just doesn't have a sense of humour and needs to lighten up, but that's almost never the case. Um, the fact is, if you're saying something that's racist and you think it's funny uh, doesn't mean it's not racist. Is, is that a growing uh, trend that you've seen that more and more people are um, taking workplaces to task over this behaviour? I think people these days are more prepared to, to put their hand up and say, hang on, that's not on, when they see something going on in the workplace that's offensive to them. And I think that's a really good thing. I think that with, um, firstly, the, the legal protections around um, good uh, proper behaviour in the workplace, you know, banning things like bullying, sexual harassment, um, you know, uh, and other you know, inappropriate conduct. Um, but also, I think as a society, we've got a better recognition that um, no one should have to show up at work and be subjected to, to nasty behaviour that causes um, distress and even mental illness. And, and I think some of the trends we've seen over the last 12 months, like the, the Me Too movement that originated in the US, um, have really indicated that, that um, it's, it's not only is it okay to speak up when um, uh, toxic or inappropriate behaviour is happening in, happening in the workplace, but in fact, it's our duty um, to our colleagues and, and really to the community to say, hang on a sec, it's not okay to me even if somebody else is being treated badly. Because this isn't just an ethical question um, and not just a legal question. In addition, it's really damaging to the business as well as to um, individual people's uh, health and safety. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's interesting because it's it sort of got me thinking, and I've listened to people say, "Oh, you know, we're we're, we're being overly politically correct," and I've gone, "Well, I don't know if is 
is that true or is it is it not? Are they are people becoming more sensitive, or is it only because awareness has increased? What's your view? Yeah, I don't think people are, are becoming more sensitive. I, I just think that um, it's that it, this whole idea of oh, it's all just political correctness gone mad is often a backlash against a change in values in the workplace um, and, and an attempt to, to go back to these inverted commas good old days of the 1960s. Uh, but the reality is that um, these days. Uh, that sort of, um, you know, nasty behaviour like um, hazing rituals or, um, you know, um, people being, you know, required to, to tolerate, you know, nasty drinking culture or sexual harassment, you know, that's been quite appropriately left behind. Um, and, and the fact is that, that that sort of conduct, well, firstly, in my view, it was never okay, but, but these days it's recognised that that sort of behaviour really does damage not only the individual, um, you know, job satisfaction, uh, psychological health and you know that, that that things like sleepless nights and anxiety are quite common for people who are harassed and bullied um, but in addition that one person who's behaving badly in the workplace actually has quite a damaging ripple effect on the broader team in terms of starting to poison the culture and if the workplace doesn't act on that bad behavior sort of setting a trend that it's okay if we treat each other this way um, and in addition it damages um, productivity it diverts management attention um, and it's more likely that the, the best performer in a team will leave if somebody else in the team is behaving badly and being allowed to get away with it. So there was a really interesting study done that was published in a Harvard Business School report a couple of years ago which found that keeping a toxic employee on the payroll costs the average business about 15,000 American dollars per year more uh, because of the damage to productivity and the, the greater likelihood that the stars of the team are going to leave. So, you know, so this isn't just a nice to have. This is something that um, employers really need to, to sit up and pay attention to. If, if they're carrying a toxic team, they need to really think about what is the cost to the business as well as the additional uh, legal and compliance risk that we're bearing um, and to think about, you know, if we could, save an extra 15 grand a year and improve productivity, you know, get the team back on track as far as its focus on the work, wouldn't that be a good thing? Yeah, well, it's. I find it quite fascinating. I was thinking about it in prep for our conversation today and I thought it's almost impossible to avoid because you're dealing with human beings and behaviour is always going to vary uh, and it's more about how to manage it in the workplace because there's always going to be certain personality types that people are not going to get on there's going yeah, to be the, the politics and things so it's more about managing it uh, and so in your new book it's a nice little segue to talk about your new book fix your team the tools to you need to rebuild relationships address conflict and stop destructive behavior so I thought we might just focus the next little while on what some of the tools are so let's let's sort of focus more on what we can do to help manage it so let's start with rebuilding relationships what are some of the advice that or guidance that you would give someone 
also for the manager to help the team rebuild relationships. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so I think if you're in a managerial position, you've got to be aware that um, it's legitimate for you to intervene if people in the team are disagreeing and that that disagreement is actually impacting on the ability to do work. So I think a lot of managers are hesitant to, to call out, say, gossiping or undermining behaviour because they don't want to um, create more conflict. Mm. I think sometimes there's the fear or they don't want to be seen as coming in heavy or someone who's, you know, not up for a bit of fun. Um, they want to get along with a lot of people. And in addition, I think a lot of managers, in fact, you know, like everybody else, fear conflict or are not quite sure how to step in. But I think the first step is to for the manager to really look at what's going on in the team and think, are these dysfunctional relationships and the way people are treating each other um, damaging our ability to do the best work we can do as a group? And if they are, then that is a legitimate and, in fact, an appropriate thing for you to, to intervene in. And there's a few different ways you can do that. You could have um, some offline conversations with a couple of individuals and check with them to see whether what you're perceiving to be um, problem relationships, in fact, is what's happening. You can develop some self-reflection in the whole team, doing a, a, some sort of a team building or review exercise where the team thinks about, well, what are we trying to achieve together? Are we clear on that? Are we clear how each one of us and our work fits into that broader effort? And also, do we agree on the values that should guide how we get there? Because quite often... There's a lack of clarity in the way the team is operating that's meaning that um, individual spats or um, bad behaviour by one person are being allowed to, to continue over a long period of time because there just isn't sufficient accountability for what we're doing and how we treat each other. So I think the first thing for managers is really to decide to, to t um, take action and then to think carefully about how they can do that. That's wonderful advice, Rose Bryant-Smith. Your book is available, I'm assuming, where all books, good books are sold. It and is, and <laughs> online also with Book Depository and uh, Booktopia. Excellent. Now, if people want to find more about WorkLogic and more about you, where's the best place for them to find out? Yeah, so they can find out on worklogicinoneword.com.au which is the website of our consulting firm. And we've also set up a separate site, fix-your-team.com, which talks about the book. There's a blog with articles that we've written and published in, in newspapers and magazines about various team dysfunctions. And also there's some downloadable training for managers, 40 minutes of training about the five key skills that managers can develop to help turn around their team and bring out the best in everyone. Oh, that's great, Rose. Thank you so much for your your wisdom today and sharing all that knowledge. Really appreciate your valuable time. Thanks for having me, Jackie. That's the end of another stimulating show. We hope you've enjoyed eavesdropping on our conversation, picked up some tips, learned something new, or at the very least feel inspired. If you just joined us, you've missed a lot, but the podcast will be available on my social media, Jackie Mitchell. Thank you to our worldly and thought-provoking guests. We look forward to your company next Friday. In the meantime, keep taking care of your business mindset.